1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. Hello again. I know. I, I mean, I, I don't know why we you We must stop meeting like this. I don't know why you didn't just sleep over because we, we went out for a lovely well, dinner last kind, night. It was
3: a kind of. Uh, <laughs> it was a treat. We had a treat. Yeah, I thought it could have been fun having a sleepover. Yeah, well, thanks. We could the, have got some popcorn. Thanks for the
2: offer. Watched Grease. We went out for... Um, dinner last night Ed and I and it was lovely but the, the only thing I feel of note that happened yeah was well, thank you
3: very much <laughs> Was was when um, my witty conversation and repartee,
2: but you know that that that's without note. That's what I. I that's what Why, okay, I, and fine. everybody else expects okay, from very you. Very smooth, very yeah. smooth. Yeah. Um Was when it came to choosing a, a dessert, you were quite keen that we we had a pudding. And even though I've been trying to diet, I thought if I don't have one, Ed won't have one. Then he'll be. So sa-. was it a
3: selfless act? I didn't realize. Yeah, that. yeah. It
2: was quite an altruistic act of dessert ordering from me. And you became you. You were quite fixated on what you were going to have. I was. Well, I chose the green apple sorbet, I think. But what I found extraordinary was the way that you felt the need to get the waitress to describe to you what the green apple well, sorbet was like. Well, the thing
3: was, was that like. my... my- taste buds were telling me to have the ice cream yeah. and my sort of conscience was telling me to have the green apple sorbet. The healthy option. So I wanted some reassurance on the, why, on the green apple sorbet. What did you expect her to say?
2: It's ice that tastes of apples. Well, is it what nice? were you expecting? Is, it nice? <laughs> is, is it, it nice? Is it
3: nice? It's a good, it's a good You know th- what
2: green apples good are good... like. You know what sorbet's like. I've you never can't... had green
3: apple sorbet. No. no,
2: but you you know you can put those two things together in your mind. Well, it was a very
3: nice <laughs> dinner until now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry my my sort of consideration due consideration of the choice between green apples or It was undue consideration. And ice cream. Right, okay, well.
2: It was deliberation. Would you like to talk about You were flip-flopping about would, what you like Would you wanted. like to talk
3: about the cornflake ice cream.
2: It was so great and I was saying to Ed just now before we switched the microphones on. Um they they do this cornflake ice cream which I've also had elsewhere not not in this country but described as cereal milk ice cream and it was so good and really I could do without knowing that something that delicious exists 20 minutes from my house because I, I can get quite obsessive about things mm. and I'm worried that I may end up with a cornflake ice cream problem. Um, we're recording this in reshuffle week. Mm-hmm. When you were in government, did
3: you have any idea if and where you would be shuffled in advance? Well, let me just think about this. So, the first job I got uh, was a minister in the cabinet office. I think I had a slight Minister for Charities I think I had a slight sense it was coming but I wasn't you could never be sure but reshuffles are very messy things
2: So do you have it in your head oh I hope I get this one I hope I get this one. Oh bloody hell Minister for Charities
3: No no Does I it- was quite keen
2: to do that actually I was quite keen to do that. And then, when you were leader, and say the government had done a, a reshuffle, when do you then have to do a corresponding reshuffle? Is it like top Trumps? You think, okay, they've appointed Ken Clark to this this role. He's sort of plain speaking and a
3: little bit crumpled. Who have I got like that? What about Alan Johnson? I mean, is 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 that how it works? No, no I, I, I think they violated every cardinal rule of reshuffles. Actually, in this reshuffle, first of all, you should try to avoid people thinking it's coming. Because if people think it's coming, they immediately the press immediately speculates on who's going to be got rid of. That's the first cardinal rule. Secondly, they appear to have allowed speculation; they appear to have fed speculation about who was going to be axed which is bound to, and you can't avoid that completely, but they seem to have fanned the flames. And what does that mean? Like, sort They'll of, be saying, oh, you know, Greg Clark's on the list or, you know, Justine Greening's but, not long for this. But who is saying that? But like political aides? People around. People in it number sounds 10. sounds like it was people around number 10 were saying it. Right. Um, they, or they weren't discouraging it. Um, terrible mistake. But how do those people feel yeah, about yeah. being sort of targeted? And you, you know, sometimes that's you can't avoid that because there are noises off people saying things. Uh, and then thirdly, they kind of didn't really work out whether people were going to agree to move and whether they were strong enough to insist that they either move or leave the government. So that's what led to her farce of Jeremy Hunt and Greg Clark both being in Number Ten at the same time. Why they invited them at the same time? I God, only knows. Um. Uh, because that is another cardinal rule you, you you know you have people in sequence and you know what the sequence is so they were both in there greg clark was kept waiting for two hours while jeremy hunt said oh, i'm not moving and then she had to sort of say well i'm not moving i just think it was just such a display of weakness and 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 sort of shambles it, it, it was sort of ex- extraordinary really because that's the other thing is
2: somebody on the outside that you always think i think like why is that person being? Che- there's there's not necessarily any correspondence between somebody's no, expertise the problem. That and is the sometimes department they I mean, look,
3: in the junior ranks, it's a much more complicated process. We used to have a big board with all the departments on it and then people's names on a magnetic strip, and you'd have to put people into the different departments, and sometimes it wouldn't fit. And... Who was in charge of the board? Uh, I think the chief whip, Rosie Winston, was in charge of the board. Right. Yeah. Um, and but but and you know you had to limit the number of people who could be in there and uh, but but it, you know you had to plan it like a military operation and you know as i say sometimes you couldn't you know make sure that you didn't breach any of those rules sometimes you know people would speculate and you couldn't deny it. like when i introduced the rule to be uh, the shadow cabinet was elected and then it was appointed once i introduced that rule it was quite hard to avoid there being speculation that i was going to make some changes etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think the general Way they've gone about it was just—I don't know—it just seemed very, very. It's so so surprisingly because, I mean, it's like I know you don't like sport particularly, but it, it's the equivalent of a reshuffle of of like a set piece play, like a free kick in in football. You choose its timing, you choose when it's coming. Now, of course, things can happen which are beyond your control. People turn things down and all that, but normally you can sort of anticipate that. Yeah. And and you all go for a big team bath afterwards, like a game and, of football. Maybe
2: Not probably not, actually. Fround no. a slightly different. <laughs> in, in di- di- I don't think that's probably, no, that's not That's not compulsory. So shall we talk about what we're going to be talking about this week?
3: Do you want to? Yes. Are you sure? Yeah. Now, I'm going to concentrate hard because there's a lot here for me to wrap my head around. Does economics put you off? When someone says, oh, we're going to talk about economics now, does it put you off? It doesn't put me off. I, I like the idea of it, but I, I
2: know and, and sort of wrongly but it's so wrapped up with numbers in my head and I'm not a numbers person it's one of those things that I think there are very clever people doing it um it's obviously very scientific um let's let's leave them
3: to it but it's probably a bit above my head is what I think of it see I think that is in a way what we want to talk about so so the Queen famously asked why economists didn't see the financial crisis uh, coming I'm not up to that episode of The Crown yet. No, uh, but she did. She went to the London School of Economics about 10 years ago, uh, just after the crisis had hit. And some economists, both people who teach economics uh, in universities and students, have taken the failure to predict the crisis as a sign of something bigger, not just bad forecasting, not just sort of Michael Fish-style bad forecasting, but that... Uh, He's wet- never going to live that down? A, a Famous weather man who v- did, said the hurricane wasn't coming in in nineteen the nineteen eighties in Britain, and it was. Um, but, <laughs> we, but, we won't but, let that man live that down. Uh, but but that there's something deeper here, which is that the study of economics too often relied on the assumption that if you just left sort of financial markets to 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 like be un- you know, under regulated or minimally regulated, you know everything would work out okay. <laughs> So, so that it wasn't just a sort of forecasting error; it was a sort of a deep ideological set of beliefs that drove this, right? And and I think a a number of people have seen this as a sort of tip of the iceberg about the way economics is taught in universities. That's sort of one thing. How sort of economics is thought about in uh, our society, in the higher echelons of the Treasury and places like that, you know just a sort of quite a narrow view about free markets, uh, the way forward. So quite a sort of, you know, quite a sort of, in a way, quite political assumptions, but dressed up as economics. And then thirdly, the way in which, and I suppose this relates to my original question to you, the way in which economics, it's like a sort of way of obscuring things for people. It's like like a sort of... I hesitate to say Trump card, but you know it's like a a card to kind of rule people out of a discussion. Oh well, we can't have a minimum wage because it'll cost jobs, or we can't tax rich people because they'll go abroad, or you know, do you see what I so mean? So there are orthodoxies with well, it's like it's, it. a, it's like claiming to be a science, yes, to, to sort of shut down debate, right? And I suppose they're the sort of three critiques as I would as I would see them. Uh, but but it, I mean, is it a science? Um, well, and it's...
2: then some bits of it. If it, if it's not working, then it's the theory within the science that's flawed not the science itself well that's
3: probably right I don't I mean I don't think any of our contributors today are going to be arguing that economics should be sort of abolished but the question is how should it be changed and how might we benefit and I think there are reasons to be cheerful because there are lots of people and we'll be talking to some of them today who are saying look economics has got to change we've got to learn the lessons sounds very interesting And we're going to be talking to uh, Wendy Carlin, who is Professor of Economics at University College London and is leading on something called the Core Project, which is reforming the undergraduate economics curriculum across the world uh, at a number of universities. And we're also going to be talking to Maeve Cohen, Director of Rethinking Economics, which came out of students demanding change. Uh, in the way economics was taught, and Victoria Waldersee co-director and commissioning editor for Economy, which is trying to take economics out beyond universities to people in their lives and trying to sort of demystify it. Well, I'm, I'm very intrigued Good,
2: and then then something completely we've got different, sp- which got, is hugely exciting. We've got a sort
3: of uh, complete um, uh, Jeff's bonus uh, uh, today, um, which is um, we're going to be talking to the Prime Minister of Iceland, uh, Katrin Jakobsdottir, uh, about a new law that she's introduced. Uh, she's a sort of in a quite an interesting coalition of left and right in Iceland, but she's from the left. But she's introduced a new law on gender pay to try and close the gender pay gap. So we're going to be talking to her about that and about... Can I ask her about ambitions. trolls? Well, we've had this debate, haven't we? <laughs> Over if ice you, cream if, last you, night. if you want to... Let's not go back to the ice cream. If you want to, uh, you know, if you want to ask her about trolls, be my guest. People in Iceland widely believe in trolls and elves and little folk. i tell you what I want to ask her about, which is that she wrote her thesis as a student on Icelandic crime novels. Aha. Uh-huh. So, you know... Um, you know icelandic noir <laughs> so i'd quite like to ask her about that but i mean she's probably a busy person well
2: there's a lot on the agenda here isn't there, there Trolls, is a lot on the elves
3: icelandic noir and exactly. something about gender pay as exactly well. exactly yeah. and uh and and the other thing that's interesting is actually iceland had a, in a way was the country worst hit by the financial crisis more than anyone and has recovered we might get into that too and we've got a comedian. We do.
2: Zoe Lyons, who you may well have seen on things like Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo. She'll be coming in to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. But before that, our reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? I started a little bit of spring cleaning yesterday. Mm. We have a drawer in our house, which I, I think of as the drawer of despair. So, it's the drawer in which jars of yeah. oil and gunk yeah. live. And over. Gunk? The- what do you mean, gunk? Basically, what happens is every time um, there's an interesting looking recipe in the paper, we'll rip it out. Yeah. And then there'll be something in the recipe that you would never ever use, like pomegranate molasses. We'll use it once, think, oh, that was too much of a faff. And you end up with a drawer full of this stuff, which leaks. And I managed to, to get almost all of it out yesterday. Some of the bottles and jars were actually stuck to the bottom. And then I scraped all this stuff. It yep. was so horrible. Yep. You could make yep. a horror film yep. about it. It was like this disgusting I can Carry on listening, by the way. This is going to end <laughs> eventually this story. And the I, thing- I've
3: assured it's going to end <laughs> <laughs> within the hour. Just don't just hang in there. <laughs> and,
2: and the other thing about me yeah, is I carry on. And I, I love spice, so whenever yeah. it's my birthday, or Christmas, yeah. people buy me bottles yeah. of hot sauce. Yeah. So hot Had yeah. to pour all yeah. this the stuff down as the sink. Well and,
3: the and the I was breathing in fumes. Yeah. I wish
2: I'd worn a chemical mask. I felt like I was breathing in yeah. Agent yeah. Orange. Yeah. But finally, in I, your managed, own time. I managed in your to own get time. the drawer of despair. <laughs> <laughs> what you've got, Ed, must be. F- Good if, yeah, you're that, yeah. if you're that impatient to get into it. <laughs> I mean, I think so you've set a pretty low bloody the, bar. Mate. I cleared the drawer of despair. What's your reason? What's your great reason to be
3: cheerful? Well, I'll, I, I'll, I'll sort of say to you that I think you're right about the spring cleaning. The spring cleaning has something to be said for it. Well, I was slightly divided about my reason to be cheerful, but I've got two really. I've got two half reasons to be cheerful. One Paddington, two. So. I saw Paddington 1 with my children and basically it traumatised them. Nicole Kidman with a hypodermic needle. Right. Uh, it was kind of, apparently there was quite a common thing among lots of kids who never want to see I mean, getting them to Paddington 2 was a massive, you know, like, you know, it took a few weeks sort of showing the trailer a number of times, assuring them that Nicole yeah. Kidman, I mean, they had nightmares, genuinely. Yeah, you had to send them into therapy. Well, not quite therapy, but all the molasses. But, but you know, I just, you know, so it was hard to get them to it, but it was a genuinely, and you know, I'm not sort of one for these kind of film, you know, heartwarming. It's not my, I, I don't. You're That's sort of more you're into of cold, cold-hearted air. No, but you know, you're more into the sort of let me go and blub a bit at the sort of cinema <laughs> kind of thing. But I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was just, it's just brilliant. Okay, and then I was sort of also um, a bit cheered, and I actually got quite emotional about this watching the Oprah Winfrey speech at the Golden Globes. Um and you know people are a bit sort of cynical about her because like Seal has said that she, he was she was a friend of Harvey Weinstein the musician and all that. Seal yeah wow um are you a fan of fan of her preferred his of his? early preferred early stuff actually which, uh, which which of his songs oh just you know the early genre I think. <laughs> <laughs> Seal. <laughs>
2: Let me ask you um, a question. Had oh, you heard fuck of, off. Had you heard of Seal before you started telling a- us about absolutely,
3: Oprah <laughs> a- Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, um, so I uh, preferred his early stuff is genu- generally a good response. Actually. Yeah, it generally yeah. gets you out of jail. Yeah, uh, but you could say I preferred his later stuff and then people are thinking he must really know his stuff then. One of the early stuff, maybe people won't remember it. Anyway, <laughs> so um, so it was quite an inspiring speech. I'll tell you what, because she, she related the... Um, whole me too thing to sort of her kind of history uh, the history of you know black people in America you know the fact that she's the first black woman ever to win this Cecil B. DeMille award and all of that so anyway I I like a good political speech and it was a political speech just caveat I'm not saying, I want Oprah to be President of the United States. You mean you're not endorsing her I'm yet. not officially endorsing Oprah. and you're i are holding I, off on I'm, that. I, and I am you're ruling, not saying I'm ruling out being her running mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oprah, you know, Winfrey Miliband 2020. I don't think it's going to happen. Gonna happen. <laughs> no, I, don't, I just don't think so. I mean, I, I wanted you to be the first to know.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: So to talk about the way that economics might need to change in universities, we're joined now by Wendy Carlin, Professor of Economics at the University College London. She's leading on the so-called CORE project, which is seeking to reform the undergraduate economics curriculum across the world. I should also say that Wendy's been a family friend uh, of mine, and she's known me since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Uh, Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So, look, most of our listeners won't have studied economics at university. Can you explain, uh, first of all, what the problems with the existing curriculum were, and therefore why it needed to change?
4: The financial crisis really kicked off the transformation of economics teaching that's now underway Uh, So probably the best way to explain what happened is to recall those extraordinary events of um, what's nearly a decade ago uh, when the US housing market started collapsing. There was the first bank run in Britain for 100 years, falling trade and output across the world. And everyone thought that it looked like a, a Great Depression. And so that was kind of in the autumn. And that Christmas, students went home and were quizzed by their parents and friends you know, you're an economics student, can you tell us what's going on? And the students were really embarrassed because they had nothing to say. And back in their classes um, for the new term, they started asking why their studies seemed so remote from what was happening all around them. And that was the beginning of a big push to change things. Something
3: you wrote suggested to me that there's two things that are different about your curriculum. One is that you're not kind of assuming that everything works perfectly in a theoretical way that economists have often uh, thought so-called sort of assumptions of sort of perfect competition, perfect information, which felt quite unrealistic for the world, certainly when it came to the financial crisis. And secondly, you're changing the focus of what's being studied. So I think your first chapter is all about inequality. And I think that's a response to students. Do you want to say something about both of those things?
4: Yeah, so uh, it's true that much at least of the first standard sort of first course in economics that students take uh, has traditionally been very dominated by uh, by supply and demand, by assumptions about rational economic man. And really the view of markets clearing was uh, presented to students as the benchmark. And then eventually, and maybe towards the end of the course, they might be introduced to some imperfections away from that central benchmark and what we've really done in the core curriculum is to change the benchmark and uh, we've we've taken advantage of lots of developments in um, modern economics that uh, really highlight imperfections in markets and just to give you a really simple example just think think about the labor market the standard view that you find in a in a conventional textbook um, has has is is a model of full employment. The market clears and there's no unemployment. Whereas the way that we teach about the labour market is that because of informational problems and the fact that you can never um, have a contract with workers to... Uh, pin down how much effort they're going to supply on the job. There's always a cost of losing your job, and that means there's always involuntary unemployment in the economy. So it's a completely different sort of uh, central focus for uh, th- for the building of models. And the the your second question was to do with you know what's the subject matter of economics. And one way we approached this was to ask students. Uh, and, and actually, other groups of people, what they thought the most pressing problem that economists should be addressing was. And what was really striking is that the answers from groups in very different parts of the world uh, were very similar. So the 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 central question nominated was inequality, and that was even true of a group of all of the new recruits. Uh, to the Bank of England as professional, new professional economists, but they're also very interested in environmental sustainability, the future of work, as well as questions of financial instability. And what we do is to build a curriculum. And this has only been possible by working with lots of people, lots of economists around the world, kind of pooling knowledge. What we do is build a curriculum that allows students to develop the tools to answer those questions that they're really interested in
3: and, and i would encourage people to go to your website the core website because there is really interesting videos uh, and, and and it's incredibly accessible sort of videos uh, information about all of the stuff you're teaching and it's not just that you've got a curriculum online you've you've started to reach out and persuade a lot of universities to to adopt this curriculum is that right
4: yeah that's right. I mean it it's quite amazing uh, what what you can do with with digital technology. So this this new way of teaching economics is available free online to anyone uh with access to the internet and uh that that we could kind of get that out there quickly. Lots of people, students, teachers in different different places, could try it out, and we could improve it. So there's really a quick turnaround to get a much better uh, a much better text, and that's the one that you can see up there now. And we've now got something like sixty thousand um, people registered uh, for the ebook. We've got uh, around six thousand teachers from hundreds of countries. Um, registered for the teacher's material to make it easier for them to adopt and uh, we've got dozens now of universities um, who who are using it so it is getting used it's, it's displacing traditional methods of teaching economics in classrooms all over the place
3: for those who are not studying economics at university um what impact do you think this could have on our wider society? In other words, how do you think this feeds through from the university sector and what people get taught to what actually happens in people's lives and the public policies that are made?
4: I think it can has the potential for improving public policy. I think that to the extent that we can uh, develop a group of uh, both citizens but also those who go on to careers Using economics in their job, whether it's in the private sector or in the public sector, who have a much richer and much more re- realistic understanding of how the economy works and how it can be made to work better, then that's the that provides the seeds for improved public policy uh, so so I'm really optimistic about that
3: and look one of the things we're discussing on this podcast is not just uh, what needs to happen in universities but more generally. Uh, and uh, one of the things I was saying to Jeff in our introduction is that, you know, lots and lots of people feel quite intimidated by economics, um, but people who are not necessarily studying it. Just what, what do you have a view about what we can do more broadly about that?
4: Uh, one thing is to encourage, encourage people and uh, encourage all your listeners to go onto the website and you just find some really intriguing stories that are very accessible and that begin to give you a, a sense of the lens that uh, uh, the tools of economics can provide. I mean, just as an example, most people somehow uh, find stories about pirates uh, intriguing. Yep, so, definitely. W- yeah, well, there you go. You can you can read about, uh, figure out how to calculate the level of inequality on 18th century pirate ships. Wow. So, so really understand how… How they organised their shipboard economy.
3: What was it like being a pirate? Was it, it was pretty hard?
4: No. Well, you go and have a look. Right. Because okay. What, you, what you'll find is that that the 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 degree of inequality on the pirate ships was extremely low, lower than in any country in the world today, lower than wow. in Denmark, for example, and much much lower than that on the Royal Navy ships that were chasing them. And on those navy ships, inequality was a, as high as in any country today, like in South Africa. Wow! So there, there you go. You've got you've got some something to draw you in that I think uh, most people wouldn't expect to find in an economics text.
3: And, and last question. You know, attention has been paid to the 33 theses that were nailed to the door of the London School of Economics, a, a bit like the sort of Martin Luther's, um, I think it was 95 theses and the Reformation and all of that. I mean, do, are you worried that there is too much sort of anti-economics feeling out there? Do you do you think that there's or, or, or do you think that, you know, in a way the criticism is quite helpful to you because you're trying to reform things and trying to, to, to find a different path?
4: I think it's it's good to stir up interest in economics and the role of economics in society. I think that uh, among those uh, theses, you'll actually find many things that are already incorporated in the way that economists now think, and that's certainly in our ebook. book uh, so that it, it's it, I don't think it's necessary to have this uh, such a sort of violent juxtaposition of these uh theses against what uh what's being port- uh, taught and um, and done in economics and what's uh certainly what what we are what we are teaching uh but but there's a, there's a case for uh for heightening interest in economics I think what we need to do, though, is to really celebrate the, the, the way that uh, economics is being used to address really imp- important problems, whether that's uh, obesity or how to improve bank re- re- regulation. Economists are at work on all these different kinds of problems. And the more that a broader audience gets involved and interested and starts to understand what can be gained by using the lens of an economist, then the better for everyone.
3: Okay, Wendy Cullen, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So listening to that, we've got Maeve Cohen, who is the Director of Rethinking Economics, and Victoria Waldersey, who is the Co-Director and Commissioning Editor for Economy, which is an organisation that seeks to improve a public understanding of economics and make it less intimidating for people. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Can I ask some stupid questions to begin with? Yeah. As one of those
2: people who needs better understanding. <laughs> the first thing is, is is economics not just like science in a certain way in that it has no inherent bias to it it's whatever systems you put onto that be it free market economics or marxist economics economics itself is is sort of data and theory and empirical stuff and if a better theory comes along then you replace it right
5: well it's a social science so it can't be like a natural science in the sense that for example if we whatever we predict of the weather, it's not going to affect what happens to the weather. But if we predict that a bank's going to bust, then people run to the bank and there's a bank run. So the predictions that we make in economics affect the people that we're studying. Right. So it, it's not the same in that way. So economics is inherently political. It's born of philosophy. It's, it's a social science. It's got sociology in it. It's got all the history in it. So no is in it. that's
3: good that's helpful and and then it's not like chemistry is basically yeah. what you're saying
5: right
2: but you know i wondered i wondered if it was i wondered if it was in its purest form more em- empirical than that but that's an interesting that's that's helped me already
6: i think also there's it's quite interesting that people have this impression that there is a purest form there isn't really a purest form right. it's all something that we've made up it's a discipline like any other where we've decided to categorize a certain kind of body of knowledge as economics but there isn't a proper economics. There isn't always going to be a right
2: answer in economics. So um, then what this is, is it's become a dogma the way it's taught then.
6: Yeah, there's definitely an understanding that there's that there's a certain way that it's almost like people think politics is the bit where you debate what's right and wrong and your principles and your values but then the economics is just what's the economics of it? It's like how much does it cost and, and is this going to work or not? People have this impression that there's a there's a right answer in economics and then you can debate it in the politics but yeah. it's not really that clear a separation.
2: Right, I suppose I've got it in my head, it's like the evidence that the, polit- exactly. the economics is the evidence that the politicians go to because that's to... how it's
6: presented right? right they'll tend to say you know we'd love to fund the nhs more but unfortunately you know the economy is just not gonna
2: not gonna be able to handle it right now yeah and that that argument doesn't make any sense right so when people study economics, typically outside of politics, why 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 are they studying it?
5: Well, I think that one of the ma- the reason why I went to study economics was because of the financial crisis, and just like Wendy said, just looking at the economic news and just not understanding why or how this happened, and not feeling like it was accessible in any way, and that I could. Self educate on it, and I thought, right, I'll go to university and, and they'll tell me all about how it happened. And then I got to university, and they weren't telling me about how you, it happened and either. You're
3: at, and you were at Manchester, maybe. Yeah? Yes. I and was tell at us Manchester. about your experience then.
5: Um, so I. Um, I was a mature student, so um, I had been working before two thousand and eight, and then two thousand and eight happened, and I realised that working after two thousand and eight was a lot less fruitful, um, and decided to go to university and, and study it. And I got there, and I also studied um, politics, and I studied political philosophy, and I was going into these political philosophy lectures and just being shown all different ideas about how society runs and what we think, and how different if we put different values, if we look through the lens of a different value, it, it completes completely different outcome appears um, and found it really stimulating and exciting and then went into my economics lectures and it was completely the opposite and we were taught this one school of thought. This is what economics is. This is how the world Supply, works. Supply,
3: demand.
5: Yeah. In, so typically individuals um, competing in a market um, to either maximise pleasure or to maximise profit if it's a, if it's a company um, and everyone's striving towards efficiency and we have perfect information, all these like um, stereotypes that we have. That was exactly what I was learning in my economics lectures um, and I found it Pretty appalling. And
3: it, and it didn't help you to understand the world any better. That's the problem, isn't it?
5: The most surprising thing I found was that nobody ever told me what a bank does. And I was like, yeah. surely, like, the first thing you should learn in an economics degree is what a bank is and what it does. Um, yeah, so it was all very abstract, very mathematical and just not very useful.
3: And Victoria, why don't you say a little bit about your experience?
5: So,
6: I studied economics at SOAS and
3: I School of f- Oriental and African yeah. Studies in School London. School of
6: Oriental and African Studies. So, everything that we do is uh, related to Asia and Africa in some way. So, in in that sense, you immediately have a bit more kind of application to the theories that you're learning because you're learning them in context and that's that's quite sort of uh It's just a lot better in terms of giving you a little bit of an ability to judge whether some of those assumptions really apply. At the same time, it's quite striking how your Economics 101, your very first class, is pretty much the same whichever university you're at around the world. So Rethinking Economics is a global movement. It's in China, it's in Germany, it's in the US. And everyone has essentially the same lectures. And if you compare that to politics, it's kind of crazy that in any culture around the world, we assume that the economy works the same way when, in fact, economies are just the societies that we live in and how could they possibly all operate in the same way. So I had a, a more progressive education in some ways, but still I was taught the fundamentals that everyone else was taught and had the same feeling of, well, I, I don't feel very rational or like I know everything all the time, so am I, do I not apply?
3: May you then... Um had this experience at Manchester and there was a student movement that formed to try and demand change. Is that right?
5: Yeah. So it was wonderful. My uh, friends, Zach and Joe, sent around an email um, that said calling all the And I was like, "Ha oh, <laughs> that's a hilarious name and I'm an conno-sceptic. Um, and so we formed Post Crash Economics at Manchester. And sort of the difference between what we're campaigning for and what Wendy does, I think we we agree in the analysis of what went wrong and what is really needs to be, in in some ways, what needs to be fixed with economics degrees. But um, whereas we think that the, the discipline of economics is flawed, um, Wendy and the core people, as far as I know, think that the discipline is fine and we're, we're doing a terrible job of teaching it. And I, I, we are doing a terrible job of teaching it, and we agree <laughs> with that. But... Um, we critique the discipline as well. We feel like there's this one school of thought, which is the one that I've outlined for you, but there's many other different schools of thought that are relevant in in some circumstances. So, for example, um, the environment within the school of th- thought that we learn at university is seen as outside of the economy. And so it, can't, it is not considered in economic decisions in the way that some people think it should. So another example would be ecological economics in which the economy is seen as embedded in the environment. So every single decision that gets made in ecological economics has the environment embedded in it. So both ways of thinking have their have their benefits, but what we're arguing for is that Economic students should be versed in in all the different, well, not all the different ways of thinking it, but the credible ways of thinking about economics, so that they've got this richer and more useful view of the world.
3: So tell us about then the the, the mission of rethinking economics because it came out of the students who were dissatisfied. Demanding change in the curriculum, you're obviously no longer at university studying economics. But what what, do you, what does rethinking economics do then?
5: So we're a campaign for pluralism. So we are a campaign for different schools of thought to be taught. But we're also a campaign for real world application, for history of economic thought and um, economic history to be taught. And these are things that the core curriculum does do. It it teaches economic history, um, in 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 a way, um, and. We want economists to be critical. We want them to be versed in political theory. We want them to be versed in in sociology. We want them to have a broader understanding of what humans are, how they behave, what the assumptions that we are bringing to the table are and whether they will affect our policies in any
3: way. So, yeah. And do you think change is coming? The same question I asked Wendy. I mean, I'm struck by the list of Wendy's list. You know, it doesn't have the London School of Economics on it. It doesn't have, I don't think, Oxford or Cambridge. I mean... How's your campaign going?
5: Um, Well, it's incredibly difficult because it's not just the economics departments can decide, all right, we're going to teach... um feminist economics because they haven't got any feminist economists in the department right there's a big problem with how we recruit researchers to universities so in order to get a job at a really good university you have to have your research published in in a in a credible journal so the journals go up to four stars so if you have your research published in a four-star journal then you get a good job in a good university and the problem is that all of the four-star journals are mainstream economics all of the three star journals, apart from one, are mainstream economics. So in order to get a job in, a, in an economics department at a Russell Group University, you have to be a mainstream economist. So when we went to Manchester and said, look, could you give us a, a course on whatever school of thought? They said, we would love to. We can see the reasons why, but we don't have any academics that can teach that. Um, so there's massive institutional barriers to change that are more than just a, uh, an economics department going, yeah, that sounds
3: great. Now, Victoria, tell us about your organisation because you're kind of responding to the what, what? If I can speak for Jeff, uh, what Jeff? I <laughs> what think the man in the what, what Jeff feels? <laughs> which is, well, I think what lots and lots of people feel, yeah, even absolutely. people who studied like me in a master's in economics. You know, it can be intimidating. It's almost like designed to be intimidating and <laughs> and to sort of put people off. And is that your? Is that what you're trying to deal with?
6: Yeah. So people are definitely incredibly intimidated by economics. We were just talking about this kind of economy face, which is what my colleagues and I say. That this is the expression that people have when they say. So we started. We started economy as a digital news platform. And uh, when we would introduce ourselves to people and they go, Oh, yeah, what do you do? I'd be like, Oh, I just co founded this digital news platform. And they'd be like, Oh, that's so cool. What is it? And I'd be like, Oh, it's trying to make economics more interesting. And their face just drops. It's a
3: party killer. It's, it's such a party killer. And everybody then we would find ourselves looked, and be like, No, you're They, you they don't were looking understand. over your shoulder, finding someone else to talk to at the party. <laughs> yeah,
6: that really is what would happen. And then we'd find ourselves like justifying ourselves. We'd be like, No, 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 please, please. It's, it's interesting. I promise. <laughs> this is exactly why we exist, you know. Um, so that feeling is definitely very real and very present. Um, and I think it's completely understandable if you think about you know the vast majority of us won't study economics at university nor will we study it at school and actually one of the campaigns that we're just about to launch is to get economics uh, into the school curriculum and make it statutory which is really really exciting But until that happens, the vast majority of us will never encounter this in an academic setting, which means that the only time that we come across this word is in the media or when politicians talk about it or when we're thinking about our personal finances, which is a subject that for a lot of people is quite a stressful thing to think about. So actually, I think it's a combination of the fact that the settings within which we learn it often presume a lot of background knowledge that people just have never really had the opportunity to gain. Um, And secondly, if you look at the way that the economy is often discussed, it's very, very detached from human involvement. So we will talk about society and then we'll talk about the economy. And I'm not really sure that they're so separate. We'll say this and this is happening in X way. But meanwhile, this is how the economy is doing. But what is the economy if not all of us every day doing what we do?
3: And And I think it is different than other areas, isn't it? Because if you think about the NHS or education or crime you know, or transport, you know, I think... It doesn't have the same chilling... I'm, I'm not saying it's, you know, Call party, it party killer. Please. You know, yeah. it, but but it, is, it doesn't have the same chilling effect, does it? I and mean, I'm looking mm. at you, Jeff. No,
2: no, because with something like transport, everybody's got an opinion yeah. on trains or in mm. NHS. Everybody's and got it's an sort of legitimate to have an opinion. Get an appointment at the doctors. Absolutely, yeah. But the economy is, is is mystified because you feel you need all this background knowledge and there's this sort of tinge of numbers and, and science to it that feels exclusive.
3: So how do we change it Victoria and not just your experience at parties but how do we (laughs) how how do we how do we change the sort of dynamic of this?
6: Yeah. So in the process of setting up economy, so I was part of Rethinking Economics as a student. And uh, and when we graduated, myself and my co-founder, Joe, um, we had just received a lot of funding as a student movement to set up this project. And the 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 remit was, was very broad. It was find a way of making this subject more accessible to the general public. And so when we went about trying to think of how to do that, we did first essentially create uh, focus groups, interview settings, places where we could talk to people. And the only criterion to talk to us was you're not remotely interested in economics so we had lots of people to talk to and uh, and we asked them why and very often actually it links to what you the point that you just made when you talk about transport or the NHS, you, you understand what you're talking about. When you talk about the economy, it's what are you visualising? What what is it tangibly? Um, and so we found ourselves. We found people would say if you ask them what colour they would think of when they thought of the economy, it was red or black, sort of urgency and darkness. You know, <laughs> uh, we asked them to picture what it might look like, and someone said a blob sitting in Westminster. <laughs> um, lots of people just say money. One person said, "Are you talking about money? Because I don't have any." You know. And so I think one of the main things that we have to do is give people just a sense of what that word really means and is. Um, The way that Economy Works, our organisation, is that we try and find spaces where people are having real conversations about real things uh, and feel comfortable and confident doing so and finding interesting ways of talking about the economy within that space. So the digital news platform that I now run is operating mainly on partnerships with publications that reach people to talk about the things they really care about, whether it's the BBC, Huffington Post, Vice, Unilad, whoever, and figuring out ways with them, with communication experts to talk about economics that makes sense for their audiences. Similarly, we're about to launch a crash course, uh, which is a series of 10 weeks uh, workshops on economics in marginalized communities around the UK. And for that, we're partnering with housing associations, with trade unions, again, finding spaces where people are already talking about the real issues that affect them and bringing in economics knowledge in an accessible way to that space. Um, so I think the combination of these on-the-ground workshops, the schools' work that we're doing and the media partnerships will hopefully just be putting this subject into the places where people are already talking about the world around them and how they feel about it and just give them economics as a tool for those conversations so that it stops acting as a, as a barrier to that and instead just becomes a way for them to develop their confidence in their opinion on everything from housing to, to work to anything else.
3: And talk about this schools aspect because there has been, I don't know how far it's got, but there has been talk in recent years about having financial literacy in schools. But that's mm-hmm. obviously a very different thing than... than economics.
6: Yeah. So actually it's interesting you ask that's we're talking a lot of at the moment about this term financial literacy and where we stand in relation to it. We're sort of developing this idea which quite a lot of people have been talking about of economic literacy and what that means in contrast to financial literacy. And to us that isn't just about uh, your money and how to make the most sort of savvy decision about where to invest but it's also about your understanding of the labour market where you live, so just, you know, what jobs are available, um, the way that you choose to vote based on your understanding of the tax system and how well that's working for you, Um, your opinions on essentially quite value-laden subjects such as immigration or childcare, um, and feeling well-versed in that conversation uh, to us is, is what economic literacy could mean. It's still something that we're exploring. And if in schools we gave people the space to discuss and debate, all the different arguments that economics has around all of those topics, we may graduate as much more well-equipped citizens um, as well as money managers. (laughs) Although presumably
3: the two things go together because you don't want people being schooled in a very narrow view of economics... It doesn't represent the real world. I mean, that's that's going to take us backwards, not forwards. Yeah,
6: well, that's the link, isn't it, between rethinking economics and economy. I think, you know, there's this grand vision where perhaps if we get economics education into schools and we work with rethinking economics so that all of our resources that we develop are pluralist, are representing a range of schools of thought, then you may start to create just kind of a bit more of a swell of demand and confidence among the public for economists to speak in a way that is more relatable, that is broader, that is more honest about the values behind it,
5: you know? So the idea is that we create economists that are equipped to deal with the problems that we have and we create citizens that are equipped to hold economists and politicians to account. So at the minute, we are economic decisions or economic influences affect all policy decisions and, we, and and citizens don't they're afraid of economics or don't think it applies to them so we have this massive democratic deficit because we have policies that are based on economic reasoning and an electorate that don't understand or disengage from economics so they don't know what they're voting on and it's a massive problem for any democracy so together hopefully,
6: mm-hmm. we'll solve Changed that the good.
3: <laughs> that's not a reason to be cheerful so um, uh, Maeve tell us if you're a, a student listening to this, and you think, yeah, I like the sound of this. how do the, how do people get involved? What can they do in their university, school, you know, wherever?
5: Well, the first thing to do will be to go on our website, which is rethinkeconomics.org, and in the in the top left hand corner there's a become a rethinker button. Just press that and you fill in a form and we will our wonderful Boom, you're a rethinker <laughs> Boom you're a rethinker, <laughs> but the wonderful Hannah will get in touch with you and she'll tell you if there's a group near you or if you need to set up your own group. We have loads of how-to packs, we have lots and you
3: of You don't need to be an economics student to do this, do you? Um
5: you don't need to be an economics student. Um obviously you need to part of it is lobbying the economics department, so it's a good idea to I mean, economics departments will listen to economics students more than they'll listen to art students. So it is a good idea to try and get economics students engaged. But no, if you think it's a good idea and if you want to set one up at your university, um, we have a very helpful staff team and lots of resources and advice to give you. And um, please do get in touch because we need more. And Mm -hmm. Victoria,
3: if people are listening to this and thinking, well, I'd like to know a bit more, you know, I didn't study economics at school or college but you know i sort of do feel it's something i need to know more about what what's the what, what's the first i mean they can go to wendys website but what's what what else can they do
6: yeah, so uh, we, there's there's a bunch of different ways. So we have our own content online. If you go on whatstheeconomy.com, then you'll find our news platform, which is de-jargoning the news of the day. Um, and also trying to make sense of some of the issues that people are likely to be coming up against, whether it's rent prices, finding a job, whatever else it may be. So that's a resource to just kind of help you start making sense of the conversation happening around you. Similarly, we're always looking for journalists to work with. We're looking for volunteers to run our crash courses and people to partner with for those crash courses and people to attend them. I'm, I'm toying with the idea. <laughs> Come
5: on, Come on. On. <laughs>
6: <laughs> no, honestly, Definitely, and they're all yeah. they're all designed so that they can be run by someone who doesn't have much experience with the subject themselves as well. Um, it's you don't really want about, Jeff running
3: the course. You're not yeah. looking at him to Why just, take just it, He take runs, it, runs take the first. course. Yeah. Let's let's right, not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah.
6: <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah. So I think we have we have available materials online for you to start making sense of it but we're also the whole point is that we want to facilitate conversations in as many different spaces as possible so whether you think it's something that you might be able to talk about with friends and family whether it's something you could talk about in your workplace whether you want to be able to lobby an mp or whatever else it is uh, on the site you'll hopefully find a way that will direct you towards any of those things or just speaking to a member of the team and we can support you in that
3: maven victoria thank you so much for joining us. thank you thanks for having us so are you less intimidated yeah, I want to find out what's
2: going on in the pirate ships. Definitely. You know, I would sign up for that course in a heartbeat.
3: I think both of us thought, is this going to be a challenging subject to do? Because it's not about a specific policy. But I think it's so important to talk about it because, you know, more than any policy in a way, this has had real impacts on people's lives. So the view that was taken about the way markets were going to work, including financial markets, directly led to the crash. Um, And it's not just economics that is at fault. That's too simplistic. But it was a certain strand of economic thinking that led to that. You know, people not getting proper wages and living standards. Well, you know, and great inequality. Well, that was partly because there was a whole set of economists who argued and it was taken by politics to say, well, redistribution is harmful and all of that. And the thought in that area is changing. So so in a way, I think this does directly impact on people's lives, and I suppose the other thing I would say, and again, something you and I discussed, is is you know, people who are studying economics, you know, should feel they should feel empowered by this to try and do something about it if they're unsatisfied, mm. you know, in a university, or if people who think they want to know more should go to the websites, you know, get involved in what Victoria and Maeve and and Wendy are doing. So is this you offering to sign up to teach a crash course? I, I don't know whether I. It's funny, even I, who've done a masters in it, you know, there's something quite intimidating about it. Yeah, there's something quite intimidating about the whole mystique of it, about going to teach it. You know, I've taught before, but it's mainly been about the sort of politics. You know, not about the technicalities of economics. I think it's quite, it's quite, you know, it's very striking. It's very striking to me in politics that there are lots of people who shrink from getting involved in sort of economic issues. For similar reasons. So, you know, it affects members of parliament and others as well. Well, I feel like I've got a slightly
2: better grasp on it. And it is a reason to be cheerful that people like Wendy and Maeve and Victoria are not only challenging the orthodoxies in the way that people are taught economics, but also in the way that um, the the
3: public understand and think of it too. Yeah. And also the, the whole concept of sort of, as Wendy said, rational economic man, <laughs> you know, who's just self-interested, only interested in themselves, operates in a certain way. Well that just turns out to be wrong. I don't think that accords with human nature and I think that's in a way what all of our guests were challenging.
1: Reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Now, gender pay has been a big issue in the UK in the past few days. The resignation as China editor of Carrie Gracie from the BBC. It's a continuing issue, the gender pay gap. We covered it on an earlier episode of the podcast, episode three. I'd encourage people to go back and uh, uh, listen to that. We had Jess Phillips on talking about what we could do. But we've got a world leader joining us, uh, a world leader, not just as a prime minister, but somebody leading on the issue of gender pay. I'm delighted that we're now joined by the prime minister of Iceland, Katrin Jakobsdottir. dottier Catherine, so nice of you to join us.
7: Well, happy to hear from you. Happy
3: to be with you. So, first of all, if I can ask you a general question, you've been in office since the end of November, beginning of December. You've got a yes. rather unique, a grand coalition, I think. How, how is it going? How, what, what's the experience of being prime minister like?
7: Well, it's a little bit like being hit by a mountain or something <laughs> <laughs> to become a prime minister. <laughs> Well, obviously, it's a very unusual government. I'm the prime minister, but my party is not the biggest party in the coalition, so it's a very broad coalition. Uh, but um, uh, well, at least we have strong support in the polls. Uh, I think there was a the demand for maybe a different, different kind of politics in Iceland. You know, I've been in parliament since 2007. We had the economic uh, crisis in 2008, and we've, you know, I have gone through five parliamentary elections in 10 years time. So it's been quite an unstable time actually.
3: And and one of the reasons why Iceland has made news in Britain uh, in the last uh, week or two is that we've got a continuing issue around gender inequality in pay. And there's been mm-hmm. a recent recent resignation of somebody at the BBC from her post about not being paid equally, and it's, a, it's an issue for, for women throughout society. But I think Iceland has got an enviable record. You've been ranked the best in the world for gender equality for nine years running. How has Iceland achieved this?
7: Well... It's actually a constant battle and I'm not sure that we're going to be number one the next time because actually now uh, we have fewer women after the last parliamentary elections in Parliament than in the parliaments before that. So it's, it's a constant battle, but we actually uh, ha- are now implementing a new legislation uh, which makes Iceland actually the first country in the world to require companies with 25 or more employees to obtain certification. Uh, on the basis of requirements of a, a, a standard, really, to prove that they offer equal pay for work of equal value, regardless of gender. So this is uh, this is actually a novel idea and it, it's definitely, I can't take any credit for it. You know, I supported it in the parliament, but it was the previous government that actually suggested it. Uh, but it will be my job, really, to implement it. So it's going to be an interesting project to see if it works, because we have also been faced with this Unexplained gender pay gap in Iceland,
3: which is still uh, something like twelve percent.
7: Is that right? Yes, yes. So it's actually, and it's quite unbelievable because we have been actually achieving uh, so many things when it comes to politics. Even though we have the slight setback now, we also have had gender quotas in the boards of companies, which is actually has proved a, a really, you know, has had quite a, an effect really on the Icelandic. Labor market. So we have actually been implementing a lot of
3: things, but but it's, it's a constant battle. And the significant thing about the new equal pay law, as you said, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that it shifts the burden from the employee having to prove discrimination to the employer mm-hmm. having to prove that there isn't discrimination. Is that right?
7: Yes, and actually. It's built on an equal pay standard, so it actually becomes necessary for companies over uh, the over the size of 25 employees to actually actually being able to really prove that they are paying equal salary for equal amount of work.
3: And am I right in thinking that you've also said that you're going to try and eradicate the gender pay gap completely by 2022?
7: Yes, that's our goal. Uh, that would, you know, if, uh, if we achieve that, we will be the first country in the world to do that. But I think I'm really excited about to see how this will work. And actually, we got a very pan-political agreement on this. All, nearly all the political parties supported it. So I think it might, and we are such a small country, which often makes it very helpful to achieve changes rather quickly, if there are only 330,000. So I think it can be done.
3: And you've also made headlines, uh, with your pledge to make Iceland carbon free by 2040, uh, which is obviously incredibly welcome. This is, this is essentially getting to zero emissions. Is that a big, is that a big part of your agenda as prime minister?
7: It's actually maybe the biggest part because climate change, you know, I come from a left green party. Climate change has been one of our main issues for many years and to achieve carbon neutrality. It's not only about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's also about using, uh, developing the land differently. And this is, Something also where I think that being a small country can actually be helpful uh, because what we need to do is really to work with all the different sectors in society. We're starting now working with sheep farmers, how we can really turn sheep farming into a carbon neutral agriculture and are going to continue with different sectors in agriculture because it's a, even though Iceland is very lucky to have a lot of renewable energies. Uh and, and naturally, well equipped to in order to re- reach this goal, it's still going to be a very big project because everybody needs somehow to participate. It's not something that the government can do by itself. The
3: other reason that Iceland has made news around the world was, of course, the financial crisis. And in a way, I think one could argue that it was the country worst hit. 80% of your stock market was wiped out, 97% of the mm-hmm. banking sector. You know, the country was almost bankrupt. Uh, how have you got through this? And in particular, I, I noticed that a number of bankers went to jail in Iceland, which is certainly unlike the UK and the. United States. How has Iceland managed to get through it, both economically and socially?
7: Well, the economic recovery has been quite good. Uh, I was actually a member of the government, the left-wing government that was in Iceland 2009 to 2013, and obviously it was a very tough period then, uh, making uh, budget cuts, but also raising taxes not least on the very rich people in Iceland. So it was a very mixed methods be used to get out of the economic crisis for the state budget. Uh, I think all the political parties have also worked very well in how in order to really reconstruct the financial system, in order to lift the capital control, which finally were lifted last year. So, uh, actually the economic recovery has been good and it has been done in a remarkable consensus. Um, but we haven't, as I said, we've had five parliamentary elections in the last 10 years. So we haven't maybe reached the social stability that we would have liked to see, uh, even though we, because you mentioned uh, the mentioned, uh, the bankers, uh, that was all really part of just the normal judicial process. But we also did, there was an investigative report done on the, uh, by, Experts that really try to analyze what happened in Iceland, why the banking system failed. And I think actually we have done a lot of improvements since then. But hopefully we are now reaching maybe the stage where we can actually begin talking about political and social, more social stability in Iceland. And that's maybe the biggest political issue in Iceland. Now the, when we see the economic recovery, how are we going to build up the uh, the public sphere?
3: I I want to ask you a lighter question, which is I read that you wrote your thesis as a student on an Icelandic crime novelist. You know that there is great passion for uh, in this country for uh, Scandinavian noir, Icelandic noir. Have you got any recommendations for us?
7: (laughs) Well, I actually love your crime fiction tradition in the UK. So I'm a great fan. uh, Which ones ones do you like? Well, I started to read Agatha Christie when I was eight years old. Wow. <laughs> well, yes. In Icelandic translation, obviously. <laughs> and I have read uh, English crime fiction ever since, um, and Scottish crime fiction, Reapers, and you mentioned it, and Anne Cleave is a favorite of mine, and her shaman novels. So, but uh, I actually... Uh, could recommend a lot of Icelandic authors. My favorite one is Arnaldur Intridasson, which has been translated into English. But there's a growing number of new Icelandic crime fiction writers uh, publishing every year, and and more and more of them are being translated. Uh, So I, I I really don't know what it is. I think maybe it's the bad weather in the Icelandic novel for something
3: that's so fascinating well it's very important
2: genre can can I ask you about um trolls and elves and little people because I was trying to explain to Ed that a majority of people in Iceland believe in these things and he thought that I was joking and that I'm making it up but there's a a strong (laughs) there's a strong tradition of that right
7: There is a strong tradition. However, I do not believe in trolls or us. You don't. (laughs) Or little little people. Well, I am not a very big woman, but (laughs) I still don't believe in little people. But we have a very strong tale tradition, obviously. And maybe because of, you know, I'm sitting right now in my office and there's a very growing wind and it's raining and it's very dark. And maybe it's just a natural habitat. It's very easy to be able to believe in in strange things when you're surrounded by the darkness here. Because I
2: heard that but, sometimes if they're building a new road or they want to uh, build a new development, that they'll go out and, and ask the, the trolls for permission beforehand.
7: Yeah, well, maybe that's the little people. They live in the big uh, rocks. And, and, and sometimes you have a history of a big rock that's happy by the little people. And then often they just bypass the road in order not to move the rock it's a it's a nice way of somehow respecting
3: the nature maybe yeah i, I have a, <laughs> I, I have a last question for you Catherine, which is that you are a great example of female leadership how difficult is it being a female leader and how important do you think it is for for iceland in terms of the focus that you have on specific issues well
7: i think if very important for women to have more women leaders. And you know, when I was four years old, this Simple daughter was the first woman who was elected democratically a president in Iceland. And and she was the first lady that was elected in such a way in, in in the world. And it was a she was a very important role model for me and my generation. Now I'm I'm a I'm a woman number two to serve as a prime minister in Iceland. And and you know that's really amazing because we had uh, so many prime ministers, up until forty prime ministers. So obviously, there's a long road ahead. But I think it's it's really important when we think about the issue of gender equality. It seems it, it somehow that it's a it, it's we're never there. We're never at the end station. So it's really important that we always keep on talking about these issues and being very mindful and and. You don't, and then therefore it's so important to have both men and women at the table. Being a politician, I know from experience what it's like to be the only woman in an all-male uh, committees or something like that. And you don't get a, you know, you get better decisions when you have the equal number of men and women. So I think it's really important for all women that we do that we just take the take the floor when we can. I also think, and I must say it, that when we look at gender equality, it's not only about the individuals, it's also about the changes in the system. And I think Icelandic women can be very grateful to the women, for example, change the kindergarten system in Iceland and change the role of maternity and paternity law in Iceland so that we actually can do this without having to make the choice between Having a family and being in politics
3: catherine thank you so much for joining us that was a really brilliant interview and we wish you all, all the the best uh with your very important uh work thank you so much
7: and i hope to meet you next when i'm in u k
3: yes p- please come and visit us in the uh u k and we uh and maybe we'll come to iceland and uh and visit the rocks and and also say hello to you. <laughs> You're
7: always welcome. I can I can
3: show you some little people. <laughs> I, 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 I look forward to it. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Catherine.
7: Thank
2: you. Well, that was great. I want a prime minister on every week.
3: I uh, will. We've got one next week too. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so trolls. I really admire you for getting. Uh, you got to the truth about trolls, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, it was Paxman esque. Yeah. You know, no you journalistic work... training, by the way. Exactly. Well, is that true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that.
2: Really, I seem like somebody who's got you like
3: <laughs> pro. You know, you didn't take the first answer. Yeah, you, know, you just kept going. Yeah. yeah, you had your point about trolls. Yeah, and I, and I you, you know, I you you got, got to got the got rocks. It out of it. Yeah, I did, did
2: get to the little people in the rocks. Here's another thing. That I mean, Woodward didn't... and Bernstein.
3: I think are quaking <laughs>
2: their boots. Honestly, here's, here's another thing that I should have asked her about. Every few years, a polar bear goes on the rampage in Northern Iceland. Really? Now, here's the thing. Polar bears aren't native to Iceland. And what happens? They're sitting, minding their own business on a bit of ice in the Arctic, and it breaks away. And then they float for days and eventually end up in the north of Iceland, which is south of the Arctic Circle, by which time they're really hungry. And um,
3: they, they
0: end up How coming onto land and going on the rampage.
2: But you know, yeah.
3: we went on our summer holiday, believe it or not, last year or the year before last to the Arctic Circle. Um, to a place called Svalbard in Norway uh, nor- northern very northern Norway in the Arctic Circle and you've if you go outside the like one kilometer perimeter in Svalbard you've got to have a gun in case you get attacked by a polar bear is that right and we saw polar bears in the wild actually it was amazing wow just like they are on the fox's glacier mint advert exactly <laughs> yeah, that's that's one for the young people who are listening but that's really interesting about polar bears yeah um, oh, I've
2: got, I've got some good facts about Iceland. It's not just all polar bears and, yeah. uh, and trolls and, and crime thrillers and crime thrillers. But
3: but I think that's a really important sort of lesson to to learn from her uh, because, you know, yes, it's a country of 330,000 people, but I think if you think about any – and this is in a way the point of the podcast – if you think about any policy issue, there's probably a solution somewhere in the world to it. Yes. And you they are obviously worldly. And just a very simple idea, change the burden of responsibility – from the employee complaining to the employer who's got to prove they're, you know, doing the right thing, that could have a real impact. It could have a real impact here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a very simple thing. It's a very simple change in a way of thinking. And
3: all prime ministers are welcome to join our podcast, aren't all they? All prime ministers? All, well, I don't think we'd refuse, would we? No,
2: that's true. Yeah.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We'd. Lo- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: Love to
2: hear from you. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard or if you've got ideas for future podcasts, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast. Or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Stroke. Not slash. Forward slash. I think a stroke is nicer than a slash. Forward slash is offensive. I don't know. I mean, I think a backslash might be worse. (laughs) (laughs) I hope
3: either is nice. A stroke is yeah, always okay. Nice stroke is a fine. Stroke is fine. Right, we've had one from Ian Hampson. Uh, he says this: "Hi, Ed. I remember listening to Jeff on Key One Hundred and Three in Manchester when I was fourteen. <laughs> uh, that was nineteen ninety-six. So please tell him he's not a millennial. I think that was the same year you opened an Asda in Manchester. I, d- I did it? open the big Asda in Hume. Yeah, if, um, if people know that. So if you're shopping in the Asda in Hume, just think back twenty years. to, yeah. to they Jeff should Lloyd. have a plaque up. Really, I don't think they do." Well, there's probably yeah. we probably can get English heritage maybe. <laughs> after. Let's get in touch with the Twenty-year rule. Uh, anyway, let's go back to Ian. That was in 1996. So please tell him he's not a millennial. <laughs> Having turned 18 in 2000, I unfortunately qualified. Does he qualify? Um, he was born in 1982. I suppose he just yeah. Does. I think, I think yeah. so. Also, Jeff may not have had a catchphrase, but could you ask him what happened to the stylophone? Love the podcast. There we go. There's a stylophone. That is the stylophone. It's
2: actually not the same one. The the same one I ended up giving to Paul McCartney. Oh, he asked for it. Really? We, we took it along. We interviewed him one time and uh, and we got him to play it during the interview and he asked if he could keep it. And I, f- I felt a bit strange saying no to a Beatle. No so, to Paul McCartney. Yeah, so I had to what, replace what's it. What's the history of stylophones? I'm, I'm not sure of the exact history, but David Bowie used one, I think, on Space Oddity. Right. There you go. This comes from Rory Keddy, who says, Hi guys, I found your trains podcast as enlightening as it was frustrating. It irks me that as much as 75% of lines are operated by foreign state-run companies, and surely Andrew Adonis's example is evidence that taking, or at least threatening to take the railways back into public ownership, can be very effective. Anyway, Jeff mentioned that Virgin train toilets are full of annoying messages telling passengers to refrain from flushing goldfish down the toilet. I've just had the pleasure of using a Virgin train toilet on my way to Coventry and have had to endure the sound of Will Ferrell's voice telling me to watch his latest film, Daddy's Home 2. He also told me not to flush my grandfather's sweater down the toilet. With profits capped, it seems that these train companies are going to all extremes to bring in extra cash, including selling my ears to advertisers when they know I'm in no position to escape. Yeah, we had lots of reaction to that's dystopian being advertised at while you're on the toilet know, on a train.
3: I know. Um, the uh, we've had lots of reaction, I think, on the on the trains episode and. Um, this one comes from Chris Burks. Hi, and Jeff. Really enjoyed episode 16 around the future of UK rail services. You touched on bus travel a little during the episode. and I think it's about time we discuss the future of those services. Spending bu- public money on buses is broadly more progressive than spending it on trains as it benefits a large number of the poorest in our society. I understand it shouldn't be an argument of either or, but only rail gets the attention. There's a fantastic report from the Equality Trust on how subsidies entrench inequality in, in the UK. And here's the link. Um, And he gives a link and we'll give it on our um, Facebook page. He also says it's not a case of one or the other, i.e. rail or buses, but I think we need to start looking at how we make bus transport more affordable, reliable and frequent for all. Thanks for a great podcast. Chris in Muscat, Oman. Wow. Bring your live show here.
2: Okay. You, uh, you sort out the logistics of it, Chris, and we're there. Good. Uh, this one comes from Hugh O'Brien, who says, I managed to convince my podcast co-host to give the show a listen. I brought it up while we were doing our show planning for our Neuro- European News and Politics podcast, Previously in Europe. it's the name of the podcast. And he was pretty sceptical. Within weeks, I was getting texts about class struggle. There we go. So you... Pe- it's Bitcoin, I tell you, you, you Bitcoin. You've, you've just got to get them hooked. Yeah. You've got to get them in in the first place. Oh, yeah, place. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. yeah. Yeah, but so look, persevere. If you've tried to get as uh, a, a new listener up, if you've tried to bring
3: along a plus one and it hasn't worked, don't give up exactly wear them down get those we want those plus ones coming in we'll read out some more on future uh, episodes and here is one uh, from martin from wakefield hello ed and jeff i've shared a few reasons to be cheerful episodes via facebook over the weeks since discovering the podcast this evening when my mum phoned for a chat she dropped into conversation completely unprompted that she'd started listening and finds it very interesting i don't know if you do shout outs but if you do Please, could you say hello to Margaret from Radcliffe-on-Trent? Margaret from Radcliffe-on-Trent, thank you so much for being a listener. Well done. Big success. And you should be very proud of your son, Martin, from Wakefield. He's he's a good lad. He's a good guy. Very well brought up. He's a good guy.
2: Uh, And we've had, uh, as well as Oman, we've had other suggestions as to where we could take the show to do live episodes, uh, including Aberdeen, Sheffield, Banbury, Belfast, Bristol, Brighton and Billericay. Billerickie has sort of the, kind of resonance, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because reasons to be cheerful in jury, Billerickie Dicky. So, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, that's one to consider, isn't it? I can't help but think that that list,
3: um, there's a page missing because it goes A, B, 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 B. I know, B, B. lots of Bs. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite striking. Anyway, we'll be announcing more live shows, won't we, in the next few weeks. Yes.
1: Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast.
2: And here with some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Zoe Lyons. Hello. 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 And you, you, you've been to Iceland?
8: I have been to Iceland. Just once I did a gig out there about five years ago for Icelandic Pride which basically meant all of Iceland turned out. Yeah. I think there's only about five gay people there, but the whole <laughs> of the country turned out. It was so supportive and inclusive. It was brilliant. And I did a, I did a show, I did a one-way show at their really beautiful art centre in Reykjavik,
2: and it was like a 500-seater. I can't sell out
8: a 500-seater here. I've sold it out 500-seater in Reykjavik. It was brilliant.
2: <laughs> They're grateful I, that you made the effort to go I all the way there. it
8: was, and there was a bit of me going... I wonder if I could relocate to Iceland,
2: <laughs> I could be huge in Iceland. It's quite dark for a lot of it's the year, uh, but then it's, it's very, very light dark. for a lot of the year as well. That's true,
8: it's dark and it has that constant background smell of sulfur, which is a little bit farty.
2: Yeah, so did you go? This is the geothermal yeah. uh, pools, and so did you go in the Blue Lagoon? I didn't, I
8: didn't have time to immerse myself in the Blue Lagoon, but you could absolutely.
3: You just smell the sulphur.
8: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like
3: Jeff when he's got a thing coming <laughs> when on got a tummy. <laughs> <book. Okay.
2: laughs> <laughs> trapped to the lift with you. Or is a...
8: <laughs> yeah, but it's a beautiful place. It's really and it
2: looks like nowhere else on Earth. It looks like the moon.
8: Yeah, it's really interesting. And if you like wide open spaces and the cold, it's right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So you've brought some ideas with you, uh, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's, what's the first one?
8: I've been thinking. Actually, it's been—it's quite topical. It's been in the news even today. It's, uh, it's about plastic waste. Right. I—I I started um, scuba diving about four years ago. I took it up as a hobby because I got to an age where I thought I better do something, otherwise I'd be dead soon. And as a comedian, <laughs> it's really easy just to sort of be in your own head all the whole time. And not do anything out with comedy. So my wife and I took up scuba diving and I've become obsessed. Really? Where'd you do it? With... I've been so many different places then. It's been amazing. We've been to we've been to the Caribbean, the Red Sea, Oman, the Azores, uh, just come back from the Maldives, going to Egypt again in April. Well the comedy career's it's... quite
3: lucrative.
2: Then.
8: Well it really isn't, but I just now plowed all of my money into doing and this. Wow, exam. you
3: don't get claustrophobic.
8: You get a bit freaked out. Yeah. But you line, get used to it, do you? You kind of get, that's, I think that's why I like it. You have to be so completely in the moment because there's a little bit of your brain that's going, this isn't right, you're breathing through a tube <laughs> and there's a 100 foot of water above your head. So you have to constantly battle your own...
3: How brain. long are you down there for? About an
8: hour, an hour, oh. yeah. About an hour, maximum And And then what, do
3: you, what happens if you sort of freak out?
8: You have to reel it in. Yes. You really have to, because you can feel that little thing in your head going, oh, this isn't right. And you know, every now and again, a little bit of panic sort of generates itself. But you've really got to really, and I think that's why I really like it—you've got to be completely and utterly in the moment. And I love it. So obviously, as a result of doing that, I've become obsessed with fish, but I've also become obsessed with plastic waste in the ocean.
3: Do you see a lot of it?
8: You see bits, and but you do see more and more of it. Yeah, you do, and it. It's heartbreaking. It really is. Heart- and you look at that and you go, that's going to be there for hundreds of years. It's going to be there for hundreds of years. And I know that the you know, the Tories have sort of brought out this idea, And not they, this week they're going to add 25p on a, on a coffee cup and we've had to endure the vision of Michael Gove walking into number 10 with a reusable coffee cup to reduce waste, uh, probably not considering the amount of heat that his face is giving off at the same time, completely <laughs> counteracting the environmental benefits of a reusable cup. But my idea is that... It's the same with the plastic bags. It's about habit changing, and and sometimes we really want to make that change, but we're a bit lazy and we forget stuff. And we've got a lot on our minds. So I would initially, I'd get rid of all plastic bags would be gone completely. That would be it. They'd just be gone. It's not a five p option. You just can't have them. You've got to get it. and I would banned, just completely banned. We don't need them. And every newborn child in this country will receive from the government a little welcome package to the earth. And in that welcome package will be a reusable water bottle, a reusable coffee cup and a reusable Hessian sack
3: oh That's what a good idea it's like
2: finland where they do the little baby boxes yes yeah,
8: yeah so it'd be a little baby box to to save the planet that just been good idea
3: into.
2: wow and of
8: course they won't last for a lifetime they may perish so on maybe every fifth birthday or so you get a new one yeah but you've you've come equipped with everything that you need
3: don't have a bag to the shopping you have to basically have more children, that's basically that's the, big, yeah. that's the basic incentive structure. <laughs> that's the problem these days, too. people just having lots yeah. more children Kendall in order to get, get their bag bags, their, their Hessian bags. They're
8: a five-bag family, look at them. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're
8: doing nothing. But I think if you start young with these things, then it will carry on. it's oh, a
2: great
3: idea. Yeah, really good idea. We'll definitely buy that, Yeah, definitely. All right, number two.
8: Number two, Uh I'm, as a comedian, I travel a lot. I do a lot of travelling, um, not just
2: scuba diving. Not
8: just scuba diving, unfortunately. Do
2: you tidy up when you're down there? If you see some plastic waste, I've
8: picked up a few bits. Of have
3: you really?
2: Yeah, yeah, What's yeah, the yeah.
3: most amazing thing that you've seen?
8: Oh gosh, the last trip I went on, I went night diving, and um, they warned me that there'd be nurse sharks there. Nurse sharks—they're fairly big, but they're 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 reasonably. Harmless, they yeah. do have mouths, but they're very they're, caring, aren't they? They're very That's caring. why they're
3: called nurse yeah. sharks. little <laughs> watch
8: attached to their chest, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, but they, they're huge, you know,
3: they do big, a fantastic big, big job, big. and they're I lovely. completely underpaid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh.
8: And they warned me they said there'd be nurse sharks there, and I was like, all right, fair enough. I had no idea how close these things were going to get. One went underneath me, I was practically <laughs> riding it. It was, um, it was amazing. It was such an exhilarating It was a night dive who was at night amazing. as well, so you can only see what's in the beam of your torch. And I was hanging onto a rock at one point because the current was quite strong. And a huge stingray just bashed into me and knocked me off my rock and sent me flying. Wow. It was really exhilarating. Yeah.
2: Do you ever lose sense of which way's up and which way's down?
8: At night you can. Right. Yeah. I haven't done many night dives, but um, that was definitely Have you?
2: I
3: mean, I've done snorkeling. I did snorkeling. It
2: went poorly for
3: me. Really? Why? Why?
2: You know, I couldn't the, the, couldn't quite coordinate the coordination of not breathing in water. But if and, I can do yeah. it, you can do it. Well, you'd have thought, but I, it, it didn't go well for I mean, me. We
3: did it. I did it on the Barrier Reef two two and a half years ago when I uh, after I lost the election and uh, you lost the election. Yeah, uh, and um, it was just amazing. Honestly, it was just brilliant. Yeah. And it's slightly tragic what's happening to the Barrier Reef. I think some parts of the Barrier Reef.
8: I find it fascinating just the amount of life that's down there that mm. that lives. Sort of seems to live quite peacefully with each other, you know. And then every now and again, a tuna will come along and eat about five of them. (laughs) But they sort of—they seem to sort—they seem to have got multiracialism, multiculturalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Have you ever had a touch of the bends?
8: No, thanks.
3: Right. No, right. No. That's if you yeah. go up too quickly. Yeah.
8: You go, go up too quickly, you get bubbles of um, uh, nitrogen in your blood. You've got to be Oof. very careful. Uh,
3: anyway, but sorry, we interrupted you. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you so, travel so, a lot. your idea. So, my other, my
8: other idea is is to ease travel woes in this country. I mean, I travel a lot. I do a lot by train, and that's just horrific at the moment. And uh, so I do also drive a lot. And um, you know, anybody who drives in the southeast of England will tell you it's a particularly busy part of the world. but I I think we could get rid of a lot of congestion by being more courteous to each other. So my idea is that every new car that's built has a device in it that every 24-hour period, you have to let two cars out. um, Otherwise, your car will lock and it won't be used. So every Mm. car has to let two people pull in. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I do. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Because often when there's congestion... It's nothing other than a bit of chaos and yeah. stubbornness. There's very rarely there something there in the middle of the road, you know, an escaped elephant or sort of numbs on the rum that's causing a congestion. <laughs> it's basically just human stupidity and bullheadedness a lot yeah. of the time. So every new car would have a device. You'd have to let two people But in. you
3: raise a really interesting question, don't you? Because when you get to driverless cars... Mm-hmm. Are the driverless cars going to be programmed to, be, to let people in, to be kind or to cut people that, up? I mean, yeah. it's really—it's a really interesting point, isn't it? But it's it. all about what. But won't the driverless
2: cars just to have some algorithm to drive in the most efficient way possible? But like?
3: if somebody—if one driverless car is trying to get into a lane, you know, yeah. turning out of a junction and wants to be let in, are they going to be let in by the other driverless car, or are they going to be? if you know about driverless cars, let us know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But presumably the humans will have to programme them to either let people in or not let people in. Well,
8: it'll be programmed to work as efficiently as possible, Mm. won't it? And to be efficient, then there will have to be a little bit of give and take. Yeah. And therefore, you can't have... Human stupidity won't be able to... um, to, to hamper that, it will just be logic. Yeah. And logic would suggest that, you know, you go, then I go, then you do go. Do you then practice
3: what you preach? Are you a good sort of. You are.
8: I do.
2: Well,
8: really always stop
3: at Zebra Crossing? Uh, yeah,
8: mostly.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but must, I'm, I'm not a driver, but I always think, like, the gratitude from other drivers must be rewarding itself. Carolina Hearn used to have a bit in a stand up yeah. about passing a test and, um, and going out and just letting people out because she likes it when people. Yeah. People
8: people aren't a little bit
2: of a wave yeah. or a little flash
3: of the, the light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people are gratitudinous, but some people are not so gratitudinous, if that's the word. I feel very
2: embarrassed if I'm in a car with somebody, somebody else lets them out and they don't do a full thank you. Oh. I've, I've, I'm then putting my hand up as a passenger. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever well, been you in a car me... with me? I have,
3: yeah. How did you find the experience? I, I didn't think Where were we you, off to?
2: We we were coming here from the centre of London. Oh yeah. I didn't find you to be the most confident of drivers. Really? Yeah. Like you have nothing of the boy racer to you. I think I'm sort
3: of courteous and sort of you know.
2: I, I think all respectful. these all, all these things are true.
3: Yeah. We didn't have any crashes. <laughs> no, we no
2: we didn't. But <laughs> well, I could imagine you getting Is that stuck you in I crash free. I could imagine you getting stuck in a lane of. Traffic, you know, waiting for somebody to let you out for a long, long time. Someone got
3: out of the bed the wrong <laughs> side this morning.
8: You see, if you had my device, you wouldn't.
2: You'd be sorted, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are we having a tiff? Is
3: this? Tiff? We are slightly <laughs> a lovers' tiff. Yeah. Um, I
2: think that's a lovely idea and and your third and final idea
8: final idea um, we have to rely on each other more as infrastructure sort of crumbles around us and um, my idea is that everybody has to volunteer one hour one week but everybody has to do it therefore everybody also gets one hour a week so uh for example i could go and do somebody shopping who is incapable of doing that mm-hmm. for example maybe
3: compulsory were, yeah. volunteering compulsory
8: volunteering not... which i know yeah <laughs> we're taking the volunteering aspect yeah. out of it away everybody has to do it but it's an hour the vol part of it is and, disappearing yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so everybody does an hour but receives an hour right so yeah you can go and do somebody shopping for them if they can't get up and down the stairs or can't get to the shop something like that change a light bulb all of those things but and then in return I also get an out which would be great because there's so many things that I can't actually do that I know somebody probably on my street would be able to help me with. What like? I can't update my website. I know it's really stupid. I bought <laughs> WordPress for dummies but there's just so many lines and words and
3: pictures in it that I can't possibly.
8: Get I'm it sure out
3: that we've got a nice way. listener who'll start the ball rolling
2: yeah, by offering no, 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 no. you an hour of your time. Get somebody on my street do it
8: for like you take
2: them an hour, right? Yeah. Jeff, you, you could help you'll... them write like a best man speech. Absolutely, something.
8: I could do that. Yeah,
3: yeah. the yeah. only obstacle for Jeff will be having to deal with people, won't it? It's, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: The, if the, if there was something I could do, where human for interaction a robot. Was, was minimal.
8: You don't like the human interaction. I'm not good at it. Really? Yeah. Sort of demonstrated. Yeah. <laughs> Already alienated.
2: I Ed's mean, yeah,
3: exactly. body language. The other my arm. Arms yeah. You've managed
8: uh, to have a rear seat driving argument I know. in an office, <laughs> I which is exactly.
3: yeah. It's a sign of yeah. the maturing of our relationship. I tend to think. <laughs> yeah. We feel confident enough to have a sort of tiff. Um, uh, I think it's a good idea. I think, it I think it's, it's a good idea. Bring people together.
8: But it brings people together. Loneliness is a huge factor, Definitely. there, not it? Loneliness is a huge factor, even though we're also, you know, inverted commas, connected with each other, which is absolutely rubbish, isn't it? You know, we, whoever gets, you don't get birthday cards anymore, you get a little thumbs up on your timeline or something. So it actually physically, it physically forces people to connect with each other, Jeff, which you might have to get over. <sighs> You know, I'm, I'm
2: not sure about, I've got a thing sure which is related to that,
3: which we tried to get our kids into. I think it was last New Year or the New Year before, which is you should do <laughs> it's going to sound very scouts honour this, but you should do a good deed for somebody who's not a family member every day. Yeah, You should think about a good deed that you've done for somebody each day.
2: So, what type of things would you get
3: them doing? I don't know, uh, um, being nice to somebody, saying hello, you know, just, just a sort of it doesn't need to be a massive thing. Even just Spread a little happiness. yes, yeah. so, yeah, saying hello, yeah. being nice to a neighbour. It's giving me anxiety.
2: I'm thinking, why, why are they saying hello to me? What do they well, want? That- do I, I don't recognise them. Oh no, what if they're going to think I'm a rude person for not remembering who they are? I mean, this is. Oh, this, just get over it's, yourself. It's a ball of anxiety. For goodness sake.
8: <laughs> when I left London and moved to Brighton. It yeah. took me a good few months to get used to the idea that people just said hello to you. Right. And people thank the driver on the bus as well when we get off.
2: Oh, I always do that. Yeah. yeah. Which I love. I'm a big thanker. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. Yeah. And just saying hello to people. They're all right. You're all right. Yeah, all right. And
2: has it improved
3: your quality of life? It has,
8: tremendously. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just makes you feel more connected, doesn't
3: it? We don't say thank you or positive things to people enough, I think, in general. Do I like we? your shoes. You like my shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm
2: just trying it out and see how it went. I'm not wearing these shoes. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's disingenuous. gonna it can't like be it can't be disingenuous then. If I say I like your feet, is that creepy? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit creepy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> nice feet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm <laughs> sorry if the Jeff spoilt it all for you. You know, th- this afternoon. I mean, you know, I I I just want to apologise on his right. behalf. You know, it's all right. Don't worry.
8: I'll get him to. I'll get him to. I'll take his hour of volunteering time.
3: I'll get him to repaint my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll go well. You'll wish you hadn't. You can um, make you a risotto, maybe. That
2: would take more than an hour. Yeah, so that's could, true. It could be there <laughs> Uh, substantially longer Zoe if people want to come and
3: see you what you're up to at the moment
8: I'm all over the place kicking all over the place they could check my website but it hasn't been updated That's <laughs> like, yeah, I need help with that they could come and update my right,
3: website right this is an me. appeal this is like a national appeal <laughs> yeah. or at least to our listeners which is Zoe needs somebody to update uh, th- maybe they'll get a free ticket to your show or possibly. something possibly
8: yep they can get as many free tickets as they will. I'm sure it must be fairly easy to update my website and
3: there'll be somebody nice who will yeah. promise to update your website Yeah. yeah.
8: Um, show me how to do it yeah. and I'll be away yeah
3: and then once that's updated, you'll be able to see easily uh, where I am. <laughs> Zoe, thanks so much. Thanks so much,
4: it's
1: Zoe. A pleasure. Cheers. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: What a packed bonanza of a show!
2: That was a lot, there wasn't there? There's was a lot to get your teeth yeah. into. And um, and and you and I are going on an espionage mission. We are at the weekend, undercover. Yeah. Are you going to wear a disguise?
3: think so. Trilby, false beard.
2: Well, you've got your hat. I think you mentioned it on last
3: week's uh, podcast. You've got a little woolly hat that you've taken to wearing that says, I heart Brooklyn. Yeah. Or something. I think that might be a bit, maybe that doesn't quite, well, that was the one that got me mistaken for Michael Portillo. So I'm, I'm sort of slightly <laughs> gone off it. But we're going to see um,
2: the, uh, the, the live episode of the very, it's huge, it's taken over the world, uh, American podcast, Pod Save America.
3: We are. Going to take some notes. We've been invited by the hosts.
2: Is that right? Here yeah, we have, yeah. Okay. Oh, God, I don't have to meet them, do I?
3: I think you might do, don't I? I'll not, <laughs> not warn you of that.
2: <laughs> I'll prepare some small talk. Yeah. yeah, just make a
3: list, do some revision. <laughs> Ask what it was like working with Obama.
2: Yeah, because I'm sure nobody ever asks them that. No, but it's What's, what's the question that you get asked, the, the, the one thing that you're asked about over and over and over again?
3: What do you do these days? <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's, here's the answer. What's the question? You get asked the same one. Yeah, yeah the...
2: exactly. <laughs> so the, the touch of like, what did you ever do, really? Oh,
3: no. You opened the Asda in Manchester yeah, in 1996. Six. It was a real high point. Yeah. Um,
2: so we'll, we'll report back on that.
3: We will. Mm. We will. But it was, it's, um, and we have got, we, fingers crossed, we've got another prime minister next week, haven't we? Yes. The prime minister of New Zealand. But, but I'm worried about people's expectations. They're going to be expecting a prime minister every week. I think we can guarantee a Prime Minister every week. But we've got Jacinda Ardern, who is the, the relatively recently elected Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's been keen to come on. We should thank everybody who we've had on today. In order, they were. Wendy Carlin. Thanks so much to her for coming on. She was busy teaching today. So thanks so much for spending the time. Maeve Cohen Director of Rethinking Economics Victoria Waldersee. it was great to have them on mm-hmm. and Katrin Jakobsdottir Prime Minister of Iceland yeah
2: and uh, friend of the trolls friend of the little people yeah. living in the rocks not yeah. the trolls she doesn't believe in trolls yeah I'm sure she's friendly with them if they did exist, and and Zoe Lyons, who I thought was just fantastic,
3: great, she was great.
2: So thanks to Gail Lofthouse, our announcer, and to James Deacon, who made the ident, and to Ed Seed, who wrote the music, and to Emily Power, who made our artwork. Emma Caution produced our podcast with policy research and backup from Alex Vice, Bryce, and Lindsey Todd. Good. He's been a cornflake. And and he's been a green apple sorbet, if you can imagine what such a thing might taste like, because it's so inconceivable. And he's been <laughs> reasons to be cheerful.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.